You are listening to a Live City Church podcast, and we hope you'll experience Jesus today. We are excited to have you join our extended online church family. If you would like further information or wish to access more content, please connect with us on our Live City Church Facebook page or visit us at livecitychurch.com. praise. The Lord is worthy of of the glory. Hallelujah. Why don't we stand still in the presence of the Lord this morning? I want to invite you to raise your hands this morning and raise your face as well. You know, for too long, many people walk around on this planet with hands down and heads low, feeling that God has forgotten them. For some people, they don't even know there's a God that loves them. But with our hands raised up right now and our faces lifted to heaven, this is a posture of children looking up at their daddy. And Father, this morning as we gather in this holy place, Lord, I ask that your affections would come to your children, that this morning there would be an overflow of your presence in this place. And across those that are watching on live stream, Father, let your glory fill this house. Let your glory fill their house. I pray that you'd move right now, begin to restore things that were not right. I pray, Father God, you begin to turn things around for their benefit. Father, I pray that you'd make the crooked ways straight. I pray that you'd fill every valley and level every mountain. That your sons and daughter can walk proudly, proudly in the destiny that you have for them. This morning, Lord, we present ourselves before you, and we ask that you'd move, and we ask, Father God, that you would touch hearts and lives. Lord, for those in need of healing for physical pain, for those struggling, Lord, with illness, and for those struggling with mental illness, in the name of Jesus, we take authority over that. And we speak to each and every body down to the cellular level and command it to go back to original design in the name of Jesus. We declare Isaiah 53, by his stripes you are healed, and we enforce that in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen and amen. Why don't you fist pump three people around you and find your seats this morning. This morning, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. And chapter 9, book of Matthew in chapter 9. I want to read a, a, a story for you, an accounting of uh, a time when Jesus walked the earth, and he still does. When Jesus left the earth, his body remained because the Bible says that we are the body of Christ. How about that? Powerful stuff. Praise the Lord. Well, if you've been following the news this this week, you'd seen that in Western Australia, they've had fires. In Western Australia, they've had floods. (laughs) It's like, it's either one or the other extreme. It's just crazy. And, uh, you know, the Bible tells us that as we approach the last days, you're going to see more and more of these things happening, just extremes of weather. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. The Bible actually prophesies and predicts that there will be global pandemics, global sickness that covers the earth. And these are just signs that are leading us towards the end times. I remember when I was a young man, 
I was uh, 11 or 12, but I, I remember praying to the Lord saying, God, I want to be able to grow up. I want to get married and I want to have children. I want to experience all these things. And uh, if you want to push back the date, kids, you should be praying the same thing. God, I just pray that you push it back. But you can't change the timing of the Lord. And we find ourselves at a time when we as believers in Jesus must become more sober. You can't just keep going about life and completely neglecting the fact that time is drawing short. Time is coming to an end. And uh, it may not happen in our time, by the way. Would you like to know Pardidi theory? This will make you feel better. Pardidi theory in end times. We're in the Jewish year 5,781. I believe Jesus will return the year 6,000. Why do I say that? The Bible says that a thousand years is like a day unto the Lord. And when Jesus returns, that will be a time of rest, a day of rest, a thousand years, millennium reign of Christ. So we are fast approaching that, 5781. So you're probably thinking to yourself, if Jesus is returning in the year 6,000, the tribulation is going to happen in the year 5,993. I've got some time. I've got some time. But the problem is the date might be wrong. It might actually be 5,981. We don't know. So <laughs> the key thing is to get yourself ready for the Lord. Okay, hopefully I give yourself enough time to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Let's read this passage together. If you have a smart device, use it. Open up a web browser and turn to it. Matthew chapter 9, reading from verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Everyone say home. Okay, Jesus went home. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Sorry, I think I've got the, I've got the wrong passage. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I've got the wrong one. My, my, uh, I didn't have my big iPad. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me go back. I got the wrong one. Let me go back to it. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, sorry. Okay, Matthew chapter 9. Same, pass, uh, same chapter, Matthew chapter 9. Reading a bit further down, verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there... He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed Jesus. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What a powerful statement. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you want to know the mandate of Jesus, he didn't, come from he didn't come for people who were healthy. Now, we're not talking about physical health. Now, he did heal, absolutely. We're talking about, metaphorically speaking, we're talking about spiritual health. For people who are hungry, who are destitute, who are thinking, I can't go any further. My life is an absolute mess. I have no future ahead of me. I cannot see a future. I'm struggling right now. Jesus came for you. If you're the kind of person who's saying, I thought I had it all, but I realize the bottom has fall, fallen on my life. The stage has dropped. I feel like I'm just suspended in life. I feel like I'm going no further. I feel right now like I'm struggling. I need something more. Jesus came for you. 
That's a big hand for the Lord right now. That's, that's good news. Because if you think that everything is working for you, praise the Lord. That's really great. That's really great. But Jesus said his mandate is to come for the people who are struggling. He's come for the people who are doing it tough. And this is a calling for every believer who is doing it well. Jesus is saying, then your mandate, your mission is to go to those who are struggling right now. The statement that Jesus made follows the response of the Pharisees and also John the Baptist's disciples who started to follow Jesus. They're having a conversation among themselves trying to work out who Jesus is. They're trying to work out what is the mission of Jesus. What will he do? They already know that he is famous. He is unlike any other rabbi that ever existed at that point in time. No other rabbi could perform the kinds of miracles and the kinds of healing and the deliverance ministry that Jesus had. There was no equal before or up to this point in time. And so they knew they were in the presence of something great, but they couldn't work out Jesus. And we read this story, and it seems simple. Jesus invites Matthew, who worked as a tax collector, to be a disciple, and we think nothing of it. The next verse says, immediately he went to have dinner at Matthew's house. As I dug a bit deeper in preparing for this message, I realized and discovered, to my amazement, that it did not necessarily happen this way, but Matthew was putting together the pieces later. But it might have been that after Jesus had invited Matthew to follow him, it was some time, even in fact, even a year or two years before this story where they had dinner at his place actually happened. We don't know for sure. All we know is there are so many cultural faux pas happening at this point in time, so many things that Jesus should not have done that he did, that it's causing people to talk, and they're questioning Jesus. They're wondering about Jesus. His own disciples, new ones that used to follow John the Baptist, are having these conversations, and they're trying to make sense of it. So let me give you some cultural context to help you to understand why this was causing such a worry to the Pharisees and also to John the Baptist's disciples who are now following Jesus. It was an established fact at this time that the tax collectors were seen as the vilest of men. They were seen as traitors to their nation. And when you dig a bit deeper and try to realize what was going on, you would find out that it was such a known fact that the tax collectors were the lowest of the low in the rung. Okay, if you think about and try to make a caste system, you say, okay, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who are the good people that we look to? It would be the religious people, the high priests probably be the highest. The temple workers and the rabbis and the teachers of the law would come next. And there would be the reputable jobs that you'd have, the, you know, the ones with dignity and respect. And then it gradually made its way down to the slaves. It made its way down to the people in no particular order who were murderers who were thieves, who were sexually immoral, who were caught out lying, who were the people who were instigating uh, problems in the nation. They all were down on the totem. But right at the very bottom was the tax collectors. The tax collectors this is the second thing to help you understand the context. The tax collectors earned the distinction. They deserved it. They deserved this. They were the most hated of men. Because in every Roman-occupied rule, according to history, 
These tax collectors were appointed from among the people because the people that were being subjugated could relate to them better. They could speak the language. They did not necessarily speak Latin. And so Matthew, or Levi, as he was called, Levi, son of Alphaeus, he was able to speak their language. He could connect with them. But this very quickly became a problem because they were seen as traitors. Let me tell you a bit more about these tax collectors. They were allowed to search your person. The only people they were not allowed to search were the Roman ladies. Not Roman servants, not Roman anything else, just the Roman ladies. But for everyone else, they were allowed to freely search them. They could hand search them, check their body out, feel them out. They could check their bags and open it up at any moment's notice. They were allowed to do this. According to the commentators, they say that Matthew probably had a booth along the riverfront so that the people that were going on boats to go to different places, they would have to check in. He was like a customs official, and he would go through the bag searching for things. There was just no privacy with the tax collectors. And it went on to this, that we discover that tax collectors in Egypt, and this happened in other parts, this is recorded, was so brutal that they would go into old women's houses and they would beat them up in order to get the information to find out where the children who owed taxes were living. They wanted their address. So think about that for a moment. A young man going through an old lady's house, bashing her up in order to get information. She had nothing to do with the taxes, but she was being beat up because of her children. In fact, ancient documents have shown there were times when a whole village, when harvest came, right, and harvests were bad, that when they knew a tax collector was coming, on occasion, the entire village would simply desert that village, move to another location, and start a village from scratch. Such was the hatred towards these tax collectors. And the fact that Jesus had chosen a tax collector for a disciple was a grave insult to this honored position, this profession of rabbi. And let me keep going a bit further. And the ultimate insult was to dine, to have dinner with a tax collector. What Matthew did was he would have held a big banquet. There would have been food and wine and everything galore. And he invited all his friends. So you know now the tax collectors are so hated, he would not have had anyone respectable among his friendship base. And so all he could invite were the tax collectors. And so the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples were concerned because everyone in the Middle East knew what happens next. You see, when you sit down for a meal with someone, a covenant was being established, a covenant of friendship that could not be broken. This was a high thing. It meant an awful lot. In Mark Chapter 2, we, uh, verse 16, we see this. He's having this meal. And what we don't understand is that table fellowship was establishing this covenant. It's so important that history tells us in one ancient story that two warriors stopped fighting each other when they discovered that their parents had had a meal together. Powerful. And I'm reminded of that passage of Scripture that says, You prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. 
See, right now the Lord is having a meal with you. You've made covenant with him. And he sits down to feast with you while the devil is looking on. And the devil is angry because you are making covenant with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are making covenant with the one undefeatable one, the uncreated one. And the devil is sitting back and he's looking and you having this meal. And he realizes there's a hedge of protection upon this person. I can't touch their person. I can't touch their family. I can't touch their health. I can't touch their finances. I I can't touch their job. Come on, this is the time where you're clapping and saying, praise the Lord. The devil can't touch you because you've made covenant with him. And this angers the enemy because when he sees whom you are having fellowship with, whom you're having dinner with, you have become untouchable. Turn to the person sex you and say, I am untouchable. We've got to keep these things real. Because some of you are cowering in fear. I've heard this said before. If I grow in the Lord, every time I begin to step out, every time I begin to open the Bible and start to read and get serious about my faith, the devil comes to attack me. How many people have said that? It's come out of your lips. Okay? And so he says, so pastor, I've decided I can't read the Bible anymore. I can't keep coming to connect group because pastor, every time I push and the devil keeps to push back, it's like you don't understand the word of God. The Bible is telling you that you are feasting with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is not allowed to touch you, not without permission. Do you know the devil has to have permission to touch you? When you have made a covenant, when you said, Father, you are my Lord and Savior. Come into my life. I will follow you all the days of my life. You made covenant with him. And now the enemy has no permission to attack you except that which the Father gives permission for or you give permission to. Someone needs to write that one down right now. You're wondering why you're struggling. Write it down. And so this was so powerful. Let me give you the next one. Because the moment that you have a meal, the moment Jesus had a meal with tax collectors, it meant and signified his approval of them. Now, these Pharisees have worked very, very hard to keep them so distant from them. And yet, this king of kings and lord of lords, I didn't know that yet, this rabbi is stooping all the way down to the bottom of the rung. Let me give you four key things I feel the Lord wants you to receive this morning. Four key lessons. Here's the first one. Write this one down. Jesus loves all kinds of people. You know, some people, I remember one time when the family first party came, uh, was trying to establish uh, a, a, a political base in Queensland. And in our church, in fact, one of the guys in our connect group was running for office, young guy. And so we we're going to help him out. And so we, were put, we put on those family first shirts. My wife is cringing because she remembers the story. And we were handing out, you know, you sat, when you're going towards a polling booth, you're handing out the track. We had people literally... Uh, well, some was actually literally spat at. I had people spitting in front of me, you know, lesbian killer, you know, homosexual hater. You're a hater. I'm thinking, you don't know me, and I don't hate them. But they were not there for conversation. They just saw the shirt, and they went on to hate people. They don't understand truly what a son of, what a, a son of, of, of God is. We're children of God, right, because of Jesus. They don't understand this. We're supposed to be like him. We're supposed to, right? Christian means Christ-like. We're supposed to love all kinds of people. But the problem is that Christians have earned this right to be disrespected. 
They have done this. They have caused problems. But I pray that in this new season, and I pray that at Live City Church, we become a people who love all kinds of people. And so Jesus is destroying the elitism of these teachers of the law. They weren't just Pharisees. If you read and compare this with the other Gospels, you find out they were more than Pharisees. They were the lawyers of the day teachers of the law. You see, back in that day, among the Jewish people, they did not have a separate law book and as well as a Bible. The Bible, the Old Testament for them, was the law book, and they followed that. So these teachers of the law were lawyers. Anytime you had a question about how to please God, if something is going to cause God to be upset, you would go to see the teachers of the law, and they would define the law for you. And so you see the problem here. Let me put it together for you. God gave Moses 631 commandments. Just chew on that one for a moment. Those in foundations class heard this this week. 631 commandments. Imagine trying to meet every single commandment. And then between the books of Malachi and Matthew, the sayings of the great rabbis were collected their take on what the commandments actually mean, and they added another 400 laws on top of the 631 And these 400 new laws were so impossible to follow that these Pharisees themselves, these teachers of the law, weren't following them. They themselves were failing at following the additional 400 laws. And they were making it impossible for the average person. If a holy man can't follow 400 laws, how could the average man possibly follow these things? And Jesus said to them, you refused to come into the kingdom and you made it impossible for these people to access the kingdom themselves. Yet you yourself choose not to enter. They can't even do it. And this is the reason Jesus came because he wants to make it different for them. He wants to change it so the people can once again access the Father, the love of the Father. And some of you uh, don't mistake what I'm trying to say. Jesus wasn't saying to hell with the law. According to Matthew 5, verse 17, just before this, Jesus actually said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them because you can't. I added that last bit. Because you can't. We can't fulfill it, so Jesus did it for us. And I want you to understand this. Matthew left his old lifestyle behind him. But Matthew did not leave his old friends behind. And that's why he was able to invite them to come and have this feast as he began to introduce them to the one that changed his life. When we become Christians, we don't abandon our family who are unsaved. We don't abandon our unsaved friends. And let me give you proviso for this one. I had an, an addict come and talk to me about this once, and they were saying, you know, Pastor Paul, I can't keep some friendships because I keep being drawn back into the old life. And I said, that makes sense. Cut those friendships off, but you need to create new ones. Keep the ones that are safe. But we don't want to be a kind of church that only knows Christians. I remember one time my wife and I, we were at a, when we were, before we were in leadership at all, we were just attending a church, and the pastor was talking about some incredible evangelist coming to the church, and he says, invite all your unsaved friends and family members. And my wife and I looked at each other, we said, we don't know any, we don't have any unsaved friends. 
We have been so busy about church, we only had one night off. That was the kind of lifestyle we had back then. And we loved it. We weren't complaining. But it caused a problem because we had no time for friendship with people who did not know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's something we must change. Jesus excluded no one. He invited coarse, uneducated fishermen to become his disciples. This is something rabbis simply did not do. Because a rabbi chose very wisely people who were able to study the law and able to copy their sayings and remember them. But here's the thing. Jesus chose coarse fishermen. Jesus chose a tax collector. Jesus chose these rejects. And Jesus chose you and me because he was confident of this one thing, that if you spend enough time with Jesus, you will become just like him. That's that moment you say, praise the Lord. Some of you think, I can never be holy. I can never aspire to be like Jesus. No, he's saying to you right now because of the story that it's possible for you to be just like Jesus. Let me give you the second key. Sacrifice is good, but mercy is better. I want you to understand this. Jesus is not saying, get rid of sacrifice. You don't need it. It's not important. No, it is important for us. It's important for our soul. It's important for us to be able to show thanksgiving to the Lord. It's important for us when God prompts us and moves us to make these crazy sacrificial gifts. Now, it might be of time. It might be of talent. But it is also of treasure, yes. But it's more than just treasure. Time, talent, treasure. We're supposed to be people who are generous about giving. But what we don't understand is this. Sacrifice is about giving generously to God. But mercy is about giving generously to others. And Jesus is saying, mercy trumps sacrifice. Loving people is more important than sacrificing to God. It's more important that you sacrifice to people. In Matthew chapter 12, a little bit further on, a few chapters, you see that he repeats the exact same thing. Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath. And his disciples and he were all hungry. And so his disciples began taking the wheat. It doesn't say Jesus did this. His disciples began taking the wheat that was growing, and they're just walking through and picking it and just eating away. And Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are still following Jesus. And they're asking this question. They said, look, your your disciples, look at what they're doing. They are eating. Isn't it unlawful to be picking grain on the Sabbath? Picking grain. They're just going along and just, you know, holding on to something, opening it up, putting it in their mouth. They were so much like this as teachers of the law. Every single step you did, every single thing. I remember we had our cousin come, and she's Jewish, she and her husband. And I wanted to visit them. It was on a Friday night. Friday night means the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Shabbat has already started. And so they could not even get into a car or go down the stairs because they wanted to honor the Lord. I don't fault them for this. They loved the Lord so much, they did not want to dishonor him by touching a light switch or touching an elevator switch or even calling an Uber. So we can look at that and we say, oh, you people are just so much into the Lord. No, no. They love him so much that they would never disrespect the Lord. When he says, don't work on the Sabbath, they won't pick up a thing. They won't do anything. And Jesus responds. He would not let this one go. He said, haven't you read what David 
did when he and his companions were hungry. He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate consecrated bread, set aside only for the priests, but they ate it, not lawful, only the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple, they desecrate the Sabbath over and over, and yet they're innocent? Think about that. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but the holy men work on the Sabbath. So which is it? Are you supposed to or aren't you? And Jesus makes this comment. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Let's piece this together for a moment. I, I was blown away when I read this. Jesus is saying, when you withhold mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is forgiving that person that does, has done wrong by you. Mercy is about being generous to people who are in need. Mercy is being ready to let go of things that you want to hold on to. Mercy is about unmerited grace, unmerited favor. It is not deserved, but you give it anyway. That's mercy. And Jesus is saying, when you withhold mercy, which is for other people, not mercy to God. You can't show mercy to God. So mercy can only be given to other people. When you withhold mercy, you are condemning them. That's a big word like that. This is a mic drop moment. I won't do that because Ben is sitting in the front row and tackling me down. Okay, it's a mic drop moment. <laughs> How many of you have offered to give everything to God, but you continue to hold on to unforgiveness? How many of you have given generously of your time, generously of your talent, generously of your treasure, but you held hatred for a brother or a sister? How many of you have given generously of your time to serve the church, but you refuse to care and give time for those in need? This is a word for all of us, by the way. This is not just for you. This is for me, too. We are quick to demonstrate how faithful we are with extreme acts of generosity to God, but we are stingy in our generosity to others. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, in the New Living Translation, it says this. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Here's the third key that I want you to receive this morning. Think of others as better than yourselves. We live in a world that wants you to think about yourself to say that you are important, you are worth it. But when you do that, you cannot do that and think the best of others. It's impossible because if all your complete focus is on yourself, and Jesus never taught that. I remember a time when I was in school camp. I was in primary in the primary years. I must have been around fifth grade. And I think it was, Ruth, you were there as well. I think it was a, it was a COC kind of camp. And I remember this particular camp because one of the events was crazy. They had this big mud pit, and we were playing in this mud pit. And uh, it was going crazy. These kids were going crazy. And then they had to blow a whistle, all these camp counselors, because they were going through the mud. They had lost a counselor who was trampled on by the children in the mud. And they had to go through the mud and do that exercise. Of find, and they found her, dragged her out. They were able to she, I don't even remember this. She, survived, she lived. But that was that camp. But I remember this one kid. 
And he, had, he looked like Opie, you know, I don't know if you ever watched that show. Anyway, he had these freckles, red hair, and his ears just stuck out half a mile. He looked like Dumbo the elephant. And these other kids just kept making fun of him, ridiculing him. He was in our dorm room, but they kept ridiculing him and trying to keep him away from them. And I remember at that time I have a decision to make. Because at that point, for some reason, I was the cool kid there. Everyone would hang out with Paul, as you do with Paul. And so, of my glory, I decided, should I share my glory with another? (laughs) But I looked at this kid with compassion because, you see, at that time, I understood what it was like to be ostracized for something you couldn't help. I was ostracized because of my skin color in a white Australia at that time. They would not allow refugees or immigrants to come in who were not of white skin, white color. And so it was frowned on when they saw people like me. We were wogs. And they used to ridicule us, the adults. I mean, today, I mean, you would, it would never happen. You'd be thrown in jail if you did that. But back then, it was just fair game. Fair game. Anyone would do it. And so I'm thinking what it was like and how hurt I've been. And I saw this kid being ostracized. I decided, you know what? I don't care. If these people want to reject me, I'll hang out with this kid. But no. I was still a cool kid. And now I brought this kid along with me. He sat with me for every breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We played games. He hung out with my friends. It was a little thing that I could do. And if you have ever experienced racism, if you have ever experienced repeated bullying and rejection, you would understand what it was like to be that kid, and you would understand what it was like to be Levi or slash Matthew. When Matthew wrote this book, he didn't give himself the name Levi. He gave himself the name Matthew. I think he was trying to distance himself from his past because it still stung to think about what it was like. What is it like when you can't help but your intelligence counts for nothing? Your talent counts for nothing. When you accepted that job for whatever reason, in this case a tax collector, be it noble reasons or not, We don't know that his family was suffering and they were starving. And he was offered this job. He thought, we have a way out. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. Don't you understand, Levi? You're going to be rejected by men if you take this. We're better off starving. No, we will not starve. And he took that job. But the moment he did that, it was an immediate ticket to rejection. In the field of social psychology, there's a term that's well known. Illusory superiority. It's a term first used by researchers Van Epiren, I can't pronounce it well, and Bunk in 1991. And it is a condition of cognitive bias where a person overestimates their own abilities and their own qualities in relation to the same qualities and abilities of other people. Happens all the time. The illusory superiority of the Pharisees against others was so great that the idea, the very idea of spending time with sinners became abhorrent. This was like the worst they could possibly imagine, and to have a dinner. This is the reason we have caste systems, while we have racial prejudice, the idea that some people can be better than others. And this is the reason that made Jesus' act so powerful. He bridged the gap in the system. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 writes, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Perhaps we need to reevaluate 
And perhaps we need to reprioritize what is truly important in God's hierarchy of righteousness. I'm going to close with one final point. Number four, fourth key. Call the sinners, not the righteous. It's the sinners that matter to God. Jesus said in verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I want you to know that the name Live City Church came about by no accident. We didn't try and find a cool name. Oh, that's really cool. It was actually a prophetic word. As we were praying, as we were leading up to launching this church, we had this word from the Lord, Ezekiel chapter 37, where, God, uh, where the Lord leads the prophet Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones. It was an actual real dry bones. It was a vision. And these dry bones represented the dead dreams of the people that had gone before him, of promises that God had and had made that people could not carry through and were broken and destroyed. And God says to the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, can these dry bones live? And you can probably imagine what Ezekiel's thinking. I've heard it said, you know, Elisha was able to, you know, a dead body was thrown on him and he came back to life. Maybe, maybe four days, maybe four days dead possible to call bones to live. But these are dry bones. The marrow is gone. There's no hope left. But God says to him, I want you to prophesy. You prophesy to these bones and they will live. And the Lord spoke to me and said, that's your name, Live City. We call it Live City, but it's actually a prophetic word. Every time you say it, Live City, Live. We're speaking to a city with people who are sick. We know that because from the time of Jesus, there were those who were sick spiritually, not just physically. We're talking spiritually. Spiritually sick people. They don't know the difference between good and evil anymore. In fact, it's complete opposite. If you knew what good was, that's not evil, and evil is not good. They don't know their way. They don't know why there's problems in their life. They're struggling. Some are thinking of committing suicide, even this very moment right now. They're thinking about it. Their thoughts are there. There's a man who's ready to leave his woman for another one. There are children that hate their parents. There are children thinking of suicide themselves. And we are oblivious to these things because we often do not reach out to the sick. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor. See, what we don't realize is that you're the doctor. You're the doctor. You're the doctor. Jesus inside of you has all the answers. That's right. This should be that moment you're like, absolutely. <laughs> this is that moment when you realize the penny has dropped that God has called you to greatness, that you have some knowledge of things, that very knowledge that can change a person's life. And that what we do here on a Sunday morning, this is the gathering of the saints. Let me tell you what Sunday morning should look like. Sunday morning should be a moment where people have to fight to get to the microphone to tell the stories. Pastor, I've got this testimony. I've got to give this testimony. Can I give this testimony? Yeah, yeah, well, hang on, but you've got to wait. There's 15 other people. No, I want to give this testimony this week. Because of all the incredible things that God has done through you in this week. Your mission to minister to the sick or to, can you minister to the healthy? I don't think so, affects your mission. 
When you begin to grasp the idea, I am actually here on this planet, saved for purpose, to help people who are struggling right now. Can I encourage you as a church to go out of your way to the highways and to the byways and begin building friendships fresh and new with people who don't know the Lord? Get into their lives, particularly if you know they're struggling in life. They're struggling with their relationship, their marriage. They're struggling with their health. They're struggling with feelings of depression and anxiety. Go and befriend them because you have the answer that they're looking for. Why don't we stand to our feet as we close the service this morning? In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3, the Lord makes this powerful statement. To do what is right and to do what is just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. What it's talking about, as I used to interpret it in the past as a child, is that if I do what's right and do the right thing, follow the law, the law of the Lord, and to do things that are just in, in the eyes of the law, God's word, then that's acceptable. But as I read it more, I realize what God is actually talking about is looking after people. Do what is right by others. Be just in your dealing with other people. It is not right that people should be starving. It's not right that people should be contemplating suicide. They don't know that they're children of God. And we need to bring justice into their lives. Let me ask you some questions. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to ponder these questions. How is your heart towards the sick and the lost? How have you sought them out? Have you gone out of your way to find them or to call them? Or have you been thinking about your own world? This morning, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for us as a church. I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not for you, I'm for us this morning, that we need to pray as a church. There are many people right now, about 18 people, who have committed to fasting and to pray over these next 21 days. And will you pray with me just this moment right now? I think it's important for each of us to repent. I, I was praying this week, and as I was praying in tongues, the Lord challenged me with this thought. Have you envisioned this, this sports area right now filled with people, filled with chairs? I said, no, Lord, I didn't dare dream such a big dream. And I felt a conviction of the Holy Spirit. How dare you <laughs> limit me? You're leading my people, and yet you're limiting me with your dreams and visions. It's my dreams and visions that you want. It's my dreams and visions that you must desire. And so, Father, this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed, Lord, we come to you as a people who are repenting before the King of Kings. Lord, we, we want to serve you. It's not that we don't. But sometimes, Lord, these messages get drowned out with so many things that keep us busy and preoccupied in life. And we repent of that right now. And Lord, we're declaring we want to make first things first. We want you to be first in our lives. The first thing we think about when we wake up in the morning, the last thing we think about when we sleep at night. And Lord, much like that, we want to start thinking about our friends who are, and our family members who don't know you. And if they were to die tonight, they would step into an eternity without you. 
Forgive us, Lord God, for being so filled with other things that we have stopped to think about the things that are so precious to you. Holy Spirit, come right now and touch every heart, Lord God. For those hearts that have hardened, I pray that you'd soften them right now. I pray that you'd minister to them. I pray that you'd encourage them. I pray that you'd inspire them. And I pray, Lord, you'd open up our eyes that we would see the need around us, that we would see the sick, and that, Lord God, we could be used by you to make a difference in their world. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that, say amen. Amen. Thank you for joining Life City Church, and we hope that you were blessed and inspired by today's message. If this ministry has made an impact on your life, we'd love to hear from you. Please drop us a line and share your story at thanks at livecitychurch.com or email us your prayer needs at prayer at livecitychurch.com. We'd love to connect with you and hear more about your story. If you love the ministry of Live City Church, you can make a financial gift to help us spread the good news of Jesus by going to livecitychurch.com and clicking the giving tab. We hope today's message has spoken into your life and look forward to your next visit.